Good morning. Uh, my name's Rufus Grantham. I've been asked by Duncan Smith and Jeff Colley from Zero Ambitions podcast to make a uh, recording about some of the work we've been doing uh, around financing retrofit and decarbonisation of the built environment. Um, I'm going to share some slides. But I'm going to talk to them. So hopefully this will work both either video or, or audio. Um, so as I said, my name's Rufus Grantham. I work for an organisation called Bankers Without Boundaries. We're a not-for-profit um, financial advisory firm, so sustainable financial advice. Uh, so we work on projects with any kind of environmental and or social benefit. And we're, we're made up of a group of, of ex-investment bankers. So bringing um, commercial finance skills to often public sector problems uh, that have environmental or social impact, um, essentially trying to mobilize capital to get some of these projects working. Um, I'm not a built environment expert in any way, shape or form, um, but we are a big part of the work that we do is working with cities, particularly um, a lot of that work uh, has been done with, with Climate Kick in Europe and the UK, um, but also directly on how to achieve net zero. And obviously for a net zero transition of any, any urban centre or any place, um, a significant portion of that is, is decarbonising the built environment, as well as things like green infrastructure, transportation, uh, and other changes. Um, as part of that work, we've worked with a, a large number of cities across Europe and in the UK, and we recently, along with um, a partner organisation, Unomia Consultancy, we were asked by Connected Places Catapult in the UK to write a report about the net zero transition of core cities and London councils, so 12 of the largest cities in the UK, um, Glasgow, Cardiff, Belfast, Liverpool, Manchester, London, etc. Um, and we took the 44 net zero action plans that um, those that the local authorities that make up those 12 cities had put together, put them, um, combined them into one group to say, to answer the questions, how much needs to be spent uh, to achieve net zero? And in, in what domains, uh, housing, et cetera? Um, and is there an opportunity to bring in alternative sources of, of, of funding? Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that report, the conclusions we've made, and a, a relatively uh, radical approach uh, or new potential approach to achieving um, local area decarbonisation and with that built environment decarbonisation. Um, one of the core uh, principles, I, I guess, thinking about this from a, from a finance perspective, um, often these kind of problems are thought of as funding challenges uh, and often are funded with grant finance. Um, or there is an underlying assumption that we can push the financial burden onto the asset owner. So in, in the built environment um, sense, whoever owns the building, um, whether that's an owner-occupier, whether it's a private landlord, whether it's local government, social housing providers, etc. Um, or we use grant funding. And when thinking about spending money, we're not thinking about what the impact of spending that money is. That's you know where a lot of our core work comes from is thinking about returns. And when you think about decarbonizing the built environment, there are lots of returns that happen. And we can broadly bucket those into two groups, um, financial, um, principally energy savings, but also um, things like maintenance savings. Um, and then 
I'm not going to say non-financial because there is real economic value in them, but what we call co-benefits, so broader impacts. And, and on some of the previous podcasts on this series, there's been discussions about some of these co-benefits. So there's a very clear linkage between housing quality and healthcare outcomes, for example. Um, and healthcare outcomes has a financial cost. There is a funding requirement for the NHS to meet that demand. And if, if uh, we have a healthier population, that demand will, will drop. Um, the, uh, the Climate Change Committee's sixth carbon budget in the UK talks about 1.4 billion saving for the NHS for every 10 billion spent on improving housing quality, as an example. Um, and it's not just healthcare. There are other impacts um, around air quality, around noise pollution, uh, around water management, potentially, uh, depending how we how we think about built environment work. So a lot of our work is thinking about how can you harness those returns from an investment perspective to support some some at least of the capital that's that's required up front. Now, if that was an easy problem to fix, we wouldn't be looking at this space because everyone would be retrofitting their houses because it would make fantastic economic sense to do so. Um, and, and this would all just be happening naturally, as it were. Now, the reality is it's much harder than that and the returns aren't fantastic. And so we need to think about how do we deal with that issue of poor returns and principal agent issues, which I'll come, come back to um, later in the conversation. Anyway, that's kind of a, a precursor. Um, in terms of um, the, the, the work that we're doing, and, and I guess I'm going to get straight to the kind of conclusion, and then I'll come back to that conclusion after a bit more detail. The principal um, uh, challenge is the cost. And I think when you look at this from an individual house perspective, you can kind of get your head around some of the numbers. When you aggregate it to a national level, the numbers become very significant. So for those 44 local authorities for this report we've written for the UK Cities Climate Investment Commission, we estimate £206 billion needs to be spent to decarbonise those places. Now, the vast majority of that, about two thirds, half to two thirds, is on the built environment, both residential and, and commercial and public uh, buildings. If you gross that up for the whole of the UK, you're getting to a number in the ballpark of £1 trillion. And that's in the same sort of range as the £1.4 trillion that was laid out by the Climate Change Committee in the sixth carbon budget published recently. Um, we have a slightly more limited scope in that we're looking at this from very much from a local authority perspective. So we're, we're not including things like aviation, for example, uh, that, that sit at a more national level. And a, a really important characteristic, I think, um, we have to keep in mind is that while the total numbers are huge um, and there are some components in decarbonizing places that are what we call you know big ticket items so large scale uh, renewable generation assets for example or waste plants the vast majority of that spend is incredibly fragmented and incredibly localized it's putting insulation into a specific house. It's, it's installing an EV charging point. It's doing a solar battery installation. It's local tree planting, installing a heat pump. I, the individual items typically are in the order of magnitude of a few thousand pounds each, maybe 10,000 pounds, that sort of ballpark. But there's a huge volume of them. Um, now, as I said, the good news is there are returns, the cash returns, um, particularly when we think about housing in terms of energy savings, um, but also those uh, broader job creation, healthcare, et cetera. And I think there is a really good case to be made that um, if you think about this in aggregate at a national level, this is something that creates a positive economic return. It's something we should be doing 
for the economy as much as for the environment in terms of the economic stimulus um, and cost avoidance elsewhere, um, rather than just an, you know, an environmental, environmentally driven um, issue. One of the other key challenges is, I think, is the way in which we nationally and internationally, it's not just a UK issue, are approaching how to deliver this transition. Um, that the approach um, is uh, typically places pretty much the entire cost burden on the taxpayer. Um, and that's a combination of tax funded government subsidies. We've seen um, announcements of those uh, just over the last couple of days, um, but also then policy that pushes spending requirement directly onto individuals. And that might, you know, we will see inevitably incremental policy come through in this sort of space that at some point you won't be able to replace a gas boiler like for like. At some point there'll be restrictions on selling houses below a certain energy efficiency, et cetera. And all of that is designed to force people or companies, depending on the setup, um, to uh, to pay to, um, to, to deliver this, trans this transition. And, and the issue with that is it creates a mismatch between who has to pay and where the benefits accrue um, that this trans transition will deliver. And particularly, um, we think that there is a real risk here that that directly counters efforts um, around levelling up. Um, so as a, as, a, as a stark illustration of that, if you take London, uh, the average London house price and the average amount of equity that the average London owner occupier has in their house, they'd need to spend somewhere in the region of 30% of the equity they have to deliver a deep energy retrofit. If you look in Scotland and the northeast of England, uh, it would move to almost 100% of the equity to deliver that. Now, one, obviously, that's not deliverable from a sort of mortgage, mortgage company loan to value restriction perspective, but it would clearly have hugely regressive implications in terms of pushing indebtedness onto individuals who can't afford it. Um, and a second really important point is that actually delivering this transition is done in places. It's the places we live and, and often you know, the places we work and increasingly those are the same uh, locations. It's done house by house, it's done street by street and it's done neighborhood by neighborhood. And when it's done uh, to achieve net zero in a specific place uh, actually requires delivering lots of different technical solutions, domains, interventions, whatever you want to call them together in one place. It has to be a place-based delivery mechanism to actually make, make this happen. And frequently, both in the UK and in other geographies that we, we operate in, um, often the solution is thought of not in a place-based perspective, but through a technological domain. A program is set up to deliver heat pump rollout or district heating or solar or insulation or new windows. And it's thought about in a very piecemeal perspective um, and put, joining those together in one place often is, is, is very challenging. So what we have ended up proposing um, is a model that's been built out from looking at all of those, all of those challenges, which is a new model of place-based delivery um, at a neighborhood scale of lots of different interlinking interventions. So this isn't just building retrofit. It's also thinking, what can we do in the spaces between the houses and the communities where people live and work? And then backing that delivery with a blended finance structure that can marry multiple different funding sources together. And then that can then be replicated and scaled nationally. Um, that kind of model will allow us to engage with alternative capital sources. Now, if we can cover part of that one trillion pound cost, 
um, through sources such as patient long-term capital from organizations like pension funds, uh, insurance companies, you know, that capital will need to be repaid, obviously, with a return, but over multiple decades, um, as well as looking for alternative sources of outcome-seeking grant finance, um, so alternatives to traditional government grant finance, then we can reduce the taxpayer burden and help align the investment, the spend of money uh, with the return in a more in a more just way that puts less indebtedness on, on some of the most vulnerable parts of society. Now, we think in the UK alone, that has the capacity to create a three to 500 billion investment opportunity in UK place-based net zero transition for the pension fund industry, for example. Um, and, you know, just for context, uh, there are about two and a half trillion of assets being managed in the UK pension fund industry. So, so there's a there's a nice fit in terms of in terms of scale. Um, so we're talking about, as I said, this isn't just retrofit. We're talking about um, a whole range of um, uh, interventions in in a place. So yes, this is this is fabric first demand mitigation. Um, although it's slightly um, I also slightly have an issue with fabric first because from a cost efficiency perspective and from an urgency of dealing with um, climate change, I don't think we can afford to do anything first. We need to do everything together. But I think I think the point is you can't do the uh, switching of heat source, et cetera, without also um, thinking about insulation and air tightness to to reduce the demand uh, piece, something that... that um, uh, uh, Peter Rickaby talked about very very clearly on on one of the earlier earlier podcasts. Um, so yes, there is there is fabric first demand mitigation, but there is also renewable energy and heat generation, um, both electricity and and heat generation on site. So heat pumps, solar battery, etc. Um, but we're also thinking about from a community perspective, what assets could you add to a community to change travel options? So that could be EV charging infrastructure. It could be funding a um, a shared ownership model around uh, a car club type type model. It could be creating uh, incremental active travel options, whether that's walking or, or cycling. Um, we're also thinking about what waste management options you could put into a into a neighbourhood. What green infrastructure you could plant uh, in between uh, in between the houses, and potentially what other community assets you could provide. And that's both to engage communities. Um, but also to change travel patterns. If you provide services local to where people live and work, uh, you change the requirement to travel um, uh, to, to access those services. So what, what that actually ends up looking like, and I'm going to try and share a slide while still talking, which is always a challenge. Um, it looks a little something like this. Um, so we're talking about creating a... Um, uh, uh, effectively a, um, uh, a central entity at a local level, so in partnership with, with local authority, that we capitalise from a range of sources, that'd be partly government funding, would be partly other sources of, of outcome-seeking finance and then repayable finance. And we deliver um, all of those things I've just talked about into a single location in a coordinated um and uh, and sort of cost efficient way to create a real trans. Yes, it will create a, a decarbonization of place, but also you know, inevitably will create a transformation of place, uh, regeneration impact. And then looking at con uh, contractual uh, mechanisms 
to capture the benefits. Um, so savings and income refers to the, the kind of cash component of that. And then the co-benefit value tracking things like healthcare outcomes in that in that community um, and other, other impacts. Um, to put this into real numbers, I think currently the, the average combined gas and electricity bill in the UK is something like £1,270. Um, a resident would pay nothing for this transformation of the place that they live, um, but their gas bill would hopefully go to zero. Their electricity bill might fall, let's say, to £400, um, but they would continue to pay £1,270, ideally through a, you know, an on-bill mechanism, um, but with that saving, the £870, going back into this vehicle and then supporting the, the finance. So this is a um, effectively a, a save-to-pay model using the energy saving to part part fund it. But importantly, this isn't putting debt on the on the householder or on the resident. The, the capital funding model sits in this central entity. Um, it's really just a long-term contract for comfort and maintenance that the resident is signing um, to make this payment. And, and the, it's tied to the property rather than to the individual. So when you move out and someone else moves in, they continue to pay. But the resident is left in, in no worse financial position than they were prior to this happening and they have a more comfortable and healthier home and also a greener healthier neighborhood um, to live in so there's a there's a clear benefit now clearly you could use this as a mechanism to leave some of that saving behind with the resident and that would create a potentially very powerful lever to in a really targeted way um, tackle fuel poverty for example um, clearly any savings that you leave on the table with the resident reduces the income to the central vehicle, the, the local vehicle that's delivering this and therefore reduces the amount of repayable capital that you would be able to support and therefore increases the amount of grant finance you need to put in. Um, but it would it would create an opportunity to be able to um, to, to, to do that. Um, so uh, I'm just going to unshare that. Um, so what what that ends up um, uh, delivering or having the potential to deliver is a really scaled and and much more um, uh, rapidly uh, rapid way of rolling out um, uh, decarbonisation of, of, of local area. And I think there's also it's worth making a point here about the supply chain as well, in that um, when we've had schemes in the past, so thinking about the UK um, New Green Deal, for example. It's created, in theory, demand for, let's say, heat pump installation at a national level. The problem is the supply chain tends to operate locally, and that demand signal is too diffuse and broad across the whole country to really drive the uh, investment that the supply chain, supply chain will need to make in upskilling um, and, and hiring to meet, meet demand. By concentrating this into local areas and then rolling out street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood, we create a local demand signal that's much stronger and we think will then um, elicit a, um, an economically rational response from the supply chain to invest because there's a great opportunity to deliver, deliver this work. Um, you know, we know that this has to happen rapidly. We know it's incredibly complex. I think the idea that 29 million householders in the UK will come up with individual decisions driven by policy that create a systemic approach for the whole country is is unlikely and so by um, creating some um, 
uh, core capacity to actually deliver this work and administer this work and deliver it in a, in a really positive and um, impactful way is much, much more likely to have a, a systemic transition rather than a piecemeal transition. And by uh, keeping the funding centrally, by moving some of that funding requirement into the um, uh, into the pension fund industry, um, it's going to move the, the burden from individuals in a way that then is far more compatible with a, a just transition and, and a positive leveling up. Um, in terms of um, you know looking at, at the capital in, in the work that we did, looking at these 44 local authorities, 206 billion that I spoke about of spend that needs to be made, the, the vast majority of that, um, about 130, 140 billion of that is in is in buildings. Um, and we're including localized distributed um, electricity generation um, in that. And that's split between um, roughly two-thirds, one-thirds between residential and, and, and commercial. Um, the largest other component of spend is in, in mobility. Um, and, and there we've really focused on uh, active travel, on passenger cars and on, on um, the bus and tram networks. Um, but again, a lot of this stuff has to happen in place and has to happen together and has interactions, again, as has been discussed on, on an earlier podcast, um, the transition to EV cars, for example, is clearly going to create incremental demand on top of that created by switch from gas to heat pumps on, um, on, on electricity available um, at the individual household. Um, just to sort of step through very briefly some of some, some of the areas and, and, and think about the built environment, um, you know there are there is a real principal agent issue at play here. So if you take the UK, about a sixth of UK residents live in social housing, another sixth live in uh, private rental. So immediately you have a a principal agent issue in that the individual who pays the bill who's going to be the beneficiary of this, the direct cash beneficiary of, of a retrofitted house, isn't the same individual who has to pay for the work. Um, and that's creating an immediate disincentive um, to, to, to pay. But we would argue, you know, in theory, that is most stark within the private um, landlord um, place, unless the private landlord really feels that they can push their rent up to recoup that, um, that energy saving. You know that will make a there are real issues around affordability of housing that they're already existing, but b that will make that individual property less marketable, um, and therefore it's not always always deliverable, even if, if even if it was um, desirable. But in social housing, it, that that um, uh, principal agent issue still exists, even though a social housing landlord is much more aligned with positive outcomes for their tenant than than a private um, landlord on average, and we see that in the in the sense that. Um, Social houses are generally more energy efficient already than um, than the average, and and private uh, rental are less energy efficient than the average. Um, so there is this principal agent issue, which which is a problem. But then the returns are just really poor. Again, if you take the the sixth carbon budget from the Climate Change Committee, um, they talk about average spend per property of nine thousand pounds and a potential energy saving of sixteen percent. Sixteen percent on the average energy bill is about two hundred quid a year. Um, you would have to live in that property and, and uh, recoup that £600, uh, £200 a year for uh, over four decades to get your money back, let alone generate a return. So the returns are terrible. Um, if you look at the, uh, the cost of borrowing on the longest mortgage that's available in the market at the moment, which is a 10-year mortgage, if you wanted to generate 
um, that capital back plus the same cost of debt it would, it would cost you to borrow that money, um, you would need an 80% subsidy on that £9,000 investment to make it work, to make it stack up from an economic perspective. So the returns here are really poor. Now, one, one aside here, when the Climate Change Committee have looked at this work, they have excluded um, solar battery installation. So they're looking purely at fabric first, insulation, demand mitigation, plus a switch to heat pump. Um, and they do that for very sensible economic reasons, which is we know that we need far more renewable energy as a, as a country, and the most economically efficient way of delivering that is large-scale um, projects. Um, it's just it's cheaper to put in place um, than, than individual household um, schemes. However, it means the returns that are generated from that flow to the utilities and then via regulation flow to all of us collectively as energy consumers, but they're not being harnessed to drive this transition. Whereas we think if you incorporate a solar battery installation, which will add something like five to six thousand pounds um, capital, um, it improves the economics very significantly. And that that that's going to be a very necessary part of it. And it also avoids the up some of the upgrade that's going to be required to deliver more energy down down the pipes to our houses because that energy is being generated on site. Um, so we think local um, electricity generation is is uh, is very important. But even with that, the returns are poor and they they wouldn't um, uh, drive you to do this, even if you didn't have that principal agent issue. And, and the final point on that principal agent issue within the built environment is we think that exists even in the owner occupier space. And that comes down to that poor return profile. Uh, the fact that you would need to you know, run your energy saving for 30, 40 years in order to get your capital back. You know, none of us generally plan to be living in our houses for 30 to 40 years. And so the, the real beneficiary of that energy saving is a future owner of the property. Now, maybe, maybe, um, and Jeff has spoken about this in the past, uh, there will be an impact on real estate price. I, if you do this work, your house will be worth more. And so actually you will benefit from that. You will effectively bring that, that long-term benefit forward. That, that could possibly be the case. I think the evidence is mixed on whether that is the case. Um, however, I think two points on that. One, is that a desirable outcome? We already have a, a you know, significant crisis in housing affordability. Um, if a net zero transition is gonna push up the, the value of properties, um, is that a good thing? And is that something we want? Open question. Um, but secondly, there is also potentially a bit of a zero-sum game problem here in that if I'm the first house in my town to do become much more energy efficient, then maybe, yes, I can charge a premium. However, if the whole street does this and then the whole town does this, and so every house is more energy efficient, does that actually drive a relative premium? And actually, does that does that benefit start to... Um, accrue away. So the real estate argument for doing this, I think, is is challenging from a from a number of um, a number of perspectives. Um, so, you know, there is a there is a returns problem. There is a principal agent uh, issue in terms of actually uh, owning owning these um, these benefits um, and 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 using them to really drive uh, drive returns. Um, and, and those sort of issues also sit within within um, the other areas, be it be it transport, be it green infrastructure, etc., the returns are, are are not always always positive. Um, so you've got low returns. We've got principal agent issues. We've got um, real benefits that accrue in terms of healthcare, in terms of job creation, 
Um, if you think about this from a neighborhood perspective and you're thinking about tree planting, then tree planting has all sorts of benefits. So for example, it reduces and improves the quality of water running into our water systems. Our water companies are starting to step up and partner with local authorities to co-fund tree planting because it re reduces their ongoing costs. Um, but so there is a uh, there are all those benefits. And when we're thinking about house to house, as an individual homeowner, I'm not thinking about the healthcare benefits of my of my um, of my community. I may be thinking about them. I'm not valuing them. They don't they don't um, they don't make a, a difference to my my pocket ultimately, and therefore they don't drive that economically rational sort of decision making. Um, there is then also a real challenge around this, which has been mentioned in, in a number of um, forum before about uh, engagement. You know, getting people excited about retrofit is very hard. Um, talking about insulation is boring. Uh, to to quote um, someone I'd rather not be quoting um, because it is important. Um, and I think one of the approach, one of the benefits of this sort of community approach, where we are not just doing retrofit, but we're also building in community assets, we're building in green infrastructure, is this becomes not a decarbonisation programme, not an environmental programme, but it becomes a local area regeneration programme. And we think that has far more capacity to engage communities and get buy-in. Um, the green infrastructure can be visually very transformational in some places. Um, we know there are huge benefits to both physical and mental health of, of living around more green infrastructure and more trees. Um, but it's also much more engaging. I think that can really uh, bring um, uh, communities to, together. There's clearly policy requirement uh, change requirements around all of this. And, and again, by by concentrating and coordinating this activity across whole streets, I think that's a better opportunity to really determine, define, and feedback those policy change requirements to central government. Um, and then there's the complexity point. This is really hard stuff to do. Making 29 million householders become experts in all the different potential technical components of a deep um, energy retrofit is not the most efficient way forward. Um, and building local capacity that's almost certainly going to involve local government, who we think are really important contributors to this process, not just for their own assets, but for the all of the assets within within the area. Um, and there has to be a funding solution to fund local government, uh, the headcount and capability to actually be able to to deliver this deliver this kind of work. Um, I'm going to switch back to just sharing screens briefly because one of the outcomes of this work is we've made some very um, uh, clear recommendations of, of how this could be taken forward. Um, you know, this is still very much conceptual at this point, and we think uh, it has to be be taken to, uh, to to test it in reality. So we've made a recommendation into UK government um, around how to try and fix that capacity issue. So while we see this delivery very much as a local area um, and local authority aligned uh, delivery mechanism. There is clearly some requirement for some centralised resource and coordination around that. If we're trying to tap into uh, pension funds who are very interested in this kind of model, um, there has to be some standardisation of reporting, of governance structures, um, so that a, a pension fund at a national scale isn't having to go through a separate due diligence process when talking with Liverpool versus when talking to Glasgow, uh, when talking to Newham, but there's some commonality in, in, in process. And also, when we think about the skills and resources that are required, some of those absolutely need to be embedded in local government at the point of delivery. 
but some of those would be better placed centrally to act as a resource to those local teams. So for example, there'll need to be some legal contracting work done. Let's do that once and then replicate it 406 plus times across the country. Um, so, so there's a, uh, a conversation about setting up a, a climate investment agency. Uh, this isn't to implement the work, but this is to act as a resource to those local entities that are implementing it. Um, but in the first place is to orchestrate a demonstrator program, which I'll, I'll come on to in a moment. Um, and to aggregate that project pipeline, and also to create a funding vehicle to channel funding into local government to actually put the headcount um, in place to deliver this work uh, and also build that centralised resource and act as that conduit for policy. In terms of a demonstrator programme, um, we, we, we think that we need to actually test this out. There's a lot of, there are a lot of, but how would that work type questions uh, involved in this. Um, we think that the only way to work through that is by doing, not by not by talking. Um, and so we're, we're calling for the creation of a, a demonstrator program um, that could act as the first part of a hopefully multi-decade long implementation program um, uh, where we are actually um, funding this for four or five hundred households per, per demonstrator and uh, proving that we can generate that return that will then de-risk this for for those sources of repayable capital <clears throat> that we know are keen to invest. Uh, and that's a, a whole project man management process of identifying uh, where those demonstrators could be, uh, working out the, the technical scope of work, and then actually project managing the implementation and monitoring the results. And then the final slide I'll, I'll end, um, end on this is around the funding. And, and this is a, is a complex slide, but it's a really important one. So in green in the middle, we have what do we spend money on? Um, and that is a mixture of the, the fabric first demand reduction piece, it's the renewable energy generation, it's the mobility solutions we'd add to a community, the green infrastructure, the waste management, and the other community assets. In blue on the right, we then have the return, so the economic value created. And we split that into two, the cash bit, principally energy savings, also maintenance savings, potentially car club income, um, and other bits and pieces, but that's the cash that could be contracted back into the entity to support the finance. And then we have in lighter blue in the top right that the broader those broader co-benefits, so fuel poverty alleviation, job creation, uh, increased productivity, healthcare, educational outcome, water management, etc. The important bit from from our perspective as as sort of financiers is where do we get the money from? How do we actually pay for this? Um, and there we split this into those two areas of repayable capital non-repayable capital. Uh, the repayable capital, we think, um, you know, this isn't necessarily drawn to scale. Um, we've said we've said 30 to 50% of the capital, potentially. I hope that actually could be conservative. Some of the modeling work we've done has suggested it could be, could be higher, but this is 20, 30, 40 year money seeking a two, 3% return, um, very much aligned with the, 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 the um, liabilities of, of things like pension funds. Um, uh, and also that's driving very real and demonstrable impact, which is increasingly important to the private sector, um, private finance sector. There could be some concessionary finance in there. So 0% return repayable finance that could come from uh, government, for example, and then also potentially creating a layer where local communities could co-invest alongside for that same return. Um, unlikely to be a huge component from a, from a cash perspective, but potentially really important from an engagement perspective. 
we know that the returns aren't good enough just to get repayable finance in. Otherwise, this would already be happening. So there is still that need for that top layer of non-repayable capital. And we put that into two broad buckets. One is kind of traditional government grant finance. So that could be um, subsidies in place already for decarbonization being repurposed. It could be economic recovery funds. We know this, this kind of work creates significant um, jobs um, uh, in local areas. Uh, it could be uh, green infrastructure funding, talking with the environment agency. It could be transportation funding, et cetera. Um, and then um, importantly, we're looking at a, at a top section there of what we've called outcome-seeking grants. So, so other forms of non-repayable finance um, that isn't just being given, um, you know, it's, it's seeking to drive an outcome. There is a return, but it's a non-cash-based return. And this is quite a wide and varied um, space of, of what this could be. It could be commercial. We talked. I talked about the, uh, the water company example earlier, where water companies are prepared to put money into this kind of um, scheme around green infrastructure because it reduces their costs. It's preventative spend for them. Um, it could be philanthropic, and that could be from... Uh, a local charity looking to alleviate fuel poverty in a particular area. It could be around biodiversity that's being created. Um, uh, all sorts of you know, educational attainment. We know there's a strong linkage between educational attainment and quality of housing. So, so it could be philanthropic, but it could also be um, uh, a, a broader piece of commercial in the sense that this will clearly decarbonize. And once you start to scale up at this, this sort of scale, um, we're, we're exploring the potential for this potentially to be a, a source of carbon credits and then be able to sell into the, the local corporate market. And you can see a really strong narrative where a, a locally headquartered company is able to purchase carbon credits for their own net zero journey um, by investing in a local scheme where their customers and their employees uh, live and work. Um, which is, you know, has a far, far better narrative than than, than investing offshore in in, um, in carbon credit creation, and, and you know, there's a there is the, probably the most difficult uh, conversation in this this whole space is around health. Um, there is clearly an economically rational argument that investing in better quality housing will reduce the demand on the health um, system um, for for decades to come, and will will pay back. Um, clearly, it is, is challenging to know how to. Um, uh, source that funding and, and any suggestion of defunding the health service to pay for this work clearly is politically um, and and um, in, in the short term morally very difficult difficult argument, but, but there is clearly scope around healthcare. Um, I'm going to stop there. Um, hopefully we can explore in, in more Q&A in a, in a podcast in the future with, with Duncan and Jeff. Um, this is work that we are actively engaged with, with a number of local authorities around the country and uh, very happy to have more conversations. If you want to look at the report that's been written, it's on the Connected Paces Catapult uh, website. Uh, was published um, on the 21st of October. Um, and, and if you want to get in touch with us at BWB, please do.